neighborhood pools are closed. This week, the same three pools you think the city is proposing to close are in fact recommended for closure. Plus, we hear about how a new outfit might just solve policing and how being diligent, redoubling our efforts, and really coming together might just solve COVID this week. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 108, where that number just keeps on ticking up slightly slower than our COVID numbers. This one is a very linear growth, and I believe you would call our COVID curve, what's the word for it? Exponential. Exponential, that's right. It's possible fires grow exponentially. I don't have the facts to back that up, but we're going to go with that into our rapid fire segment. An Edmontonian who prefers to be identified simply as George made the news this week when he was featured in a video showing his collection of 24 replica cars from the Fast and Furious movie franchise. He aims to grow his collection, hoping to have 35 Fast and Furious cars when he's completed, which honestly should only take a few minutes on the hen day to accumulate. The Edmonton Public Library has had to walk back a tweet it made in early November. In a tweeted statement, the organization confirmed that accepting the results of democratic elections, focusing on facts rather than outright lies, and encouraging those that have killed over a quarter of a million Americans to do better is a partisan stance that's unbecoming of the library. They unreservedly apologized for weighing in on any side of the political spectrum. And going forward, the organization plans to bring on J.K. Rowling as a public relations consultant to make sure everything they say is inclusive. A new report from Alberta's Industrial Heartland Hydrogen Task Force laid out a roadmap for how to implement a hydrogen-as-fuel economy in the greater Edmonton region. The report suggests that Edmonton could become a hydrogen node, which is defined as an initiative to accelerate the development of a regional hydrogen economy that can later be connected to other nodes across the country to achieve sufficient scale for a vibrant Canada-wide hydrogen economy. Yes, the whole release does read like that. And no, we haven't quite figured out exactly how Stephen Mandel convinced this organization to use the former Rexall place as a hydrogen storage facility, why the Talus Dome looks like an artistic representation of hydrogen bonds, or how deep this whole thing goes. But rest assured, we will get you the facts. That's a Speaking Municipally guarantee. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Edmonton Community Foundation is bringing you this episode. They act as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on millennials. You can learn more about Vital Signs and everything the Foundation does at ecfoundation.org. And the Edmonton Community Foundation, now they're leaders in our community. Leaders are something we've been lacking, apparently, this week, as COVID-19 seems to be a pandemic that spans the whole world and in our province and our municipalities, no one seems to really want to step up and deal with it. Is that a fair characterization? I think that's pretty accurate. We are well into the second wave, and uh, it's much, much worse than the first one. And yet, things are open. There aren't many restrictions in place. 
And there's a lot of finger pointing going on. So we're probably already out of date by the time you're listening to this. So we won't give you any specific numbers, except to say that COVID-19 in November has already killed more than 100 Albertans. It's the deadliest month since the pandemic began in the spring. So a quarter nearly of the deaths in Alberta happened in this month alone. It is only November 20th. So that's pretty alarming. There are more than 10,000 active cases and one out of every three at least the province is unable to track the source of. So that's also a problem. As we talked about in the last week's episode, potentially contributing to some poor decisions around what we should restrict. Here in Edmonton, of course, there are also uh, lots of active cases, um, more than 4,000 in the Edmonton zone and more than 3,200 in the city of Edmonton itself. Uh, We're on the province's enhanced watch list. It doesn't show any signs of slowing down anytime soon. So we've long talked about how we're attacking the COVID pandemic in the city of Edmonton. We had a mandatory mask bylaw and some regional municipalities have been reluctant to add masks, but had thresholds and both Fort Saskatchewan and Strathcona County have hit those mask thresholds. Have we finally seen anything from the province on just like, hey, masks help? Still nothing on masks. We are just reminded constantly to do our part, to redouble our efforts, to everybody has to pitch in and and do this together. And I keep seeing people on Twitter tweeting back at uh, Dr. Hinshaw saying, my family is literally doing everything possible that we can to do our part. And we have been since March. The only entities here or individuals that don't seem to be doing their part are the ones with all the power, which is the province, who could enact much stricter measures than what they announced last week for this very short two-week period ending November 27th. They could implement a provincial-wide mask restriction or rule. They could do that just in particular zones. They could close restaurants. There's lots of things they could do that they're not doing. So we've heard council talk at length about how they want public health orders to be enforced and to be created by the province who is responsible for public health. It's not an unreasonable assertion to make, but it's definitely fallen on deaf ears, I would say. And at this point, when you have public press conferences saying we will absolutely under no circumstances close restaurants, businesses are going to stay open, schools are going to stay open, basically no matter what, barring some extreme circumstance. And if what we've hit now is not yet at that extreme threshold, I think it's safe to say that the help our municipal politicians want from the province isn't coming. I know this week there was some discussion about perhaps regional municipalities stepping up and enforcing restrictions of their own volition. Right. In Edmonton and in a few other places, as you mentioned, there are mask bylaws in place. Uh, City Council will be deciding sometime on Friday, today, November 20th, about whether or not to extend that beyond the current expiration of December 31st. They will. They will, of course. Yep. Um, But there was also some discussion, you're right, about perhaps a regional health order. So uh, the mayor and, and many of the members of council basically feel like, you know, even if Edmonton decided it could do something more to prevent the spread and our tools as a city to do that are limited, but let's say we used every tool in our disposal, it still wouldn't be enough um, given that the virus obviously doesn't respect any boundaries or any borders. And so this discussion about if we do something in Edmonton, we should really do it in the region, which people freely move about in. Um, that would be a better way to try to address this. And and the mayor basically said, in the absence of some sort of provincial leadership here, some sort of direct order from the provincial government, 
there could be something that happens regionally. That would be a way for local leaders to show some leadership and potentially, you know, help curb the the spread of the virus in the Edmonton region a little bit more. If you read on Twitter, uh, like both of us are wont to do, one of the main complaints that gets hit is enforcement. You know, we don't need more measures. We just need the measures we currently have to be enforced. That's a thing that is said about every topic, no matter what political topic you're talking about, there is definitely someone that is saying that. But on the enforcement, I know there's been a lot of disagreement about the level with which enforcement should occur. And I know even provincially, Dr. Hinshaw had said this week that she's looking for police to enforce measures more because police have been taking a basically education first approach. Have we heard any discussion on either the city or the provincial level for what more enforcement might be coming down the pipeline? Well, the city says it's seen pretty widespread compliance with the various health orders that are in place. They said 96% of businesses have adopted some kind of new restrictions. So that signals that they're following the rules. Their sort of spot checks show that people are following the rules. They're wearing masks. But they do say, and the interim city manager, Adam Lachlan, said pretty clearly that the tools provided to us by the province are limited. So bylaw officers can't be out enforcing these things. It's really um, police. And they will continue to argue that police are stretched pretty thin as it is. So this is, again, a little bit of pushback against the province who is saying, you know, we have these health orders, but we're not going to give you any resources to actually go and do something to enforce them. I'd like to talk about mandatory masks, because like you said, we're going to have a meeting It will be on Friday, as listeners are listening to this, the continuation of the city council meeting. And now you and I, we made light last week when we were talking about the upcoming public hearing saying, you know, it'll be like a hearing in Pawnee. You'll have a bunch of idiots come out and say things that aren't very factual. Right. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you watched um, any of the last public hearing. God, I hope you didn't. (laughs) Very, very little. I seem to have missed all the good stuff. I will say, though, of all the conspiracy theorists, the mask freedom fighters, all of them combined didn't come off looking quite as dumb as Councillor Mike Nickel did last week. And it was truly a sight to behold because, you know... We can disagree with Mike Nickel, but near the end of the meeting, it was reaching the end of the allotted time, and there were a few speakers left to go. So Councillor Andrew Knack made a motion to extend orders by 30 minutes to hear from more speakers so that, you know, they didn't have to come back next week at the separate meeting. Seems pretty reasonable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Councillor Nickel vehemently opposed that motion and even brought it up several times afterwards as Councillor Knack trying to censor the citizens of Edmonton because Edmontonians were promised another meeting and Councillor Knack is trying to shove this under the rug to get it over with so he doesn't have to hear from Edmontonians and he's censoring the free speech of Edmontonians all over the city. You know, Andrew Knack, who door knocks for fun to listen to what Edmontonians have to say, it sure sounds like he'd be the one to shut down a conversation. I think Mike Nickel is just very upset that he's not a provincial politician because, you know, the NDP, uh, they were very good at governing, but in opposition, they sling some mud. They get into the weeds and they fight, especially on social media. At our municipal level, Mike Nickel is sitting there. He's throwing bombs at Andrew Knack, who goes on the radio and says, oh, yeah, I guess he had a point. Uh, He's constantly berating Don Iveson and making 
nuisance posts on social media and Iveson just doesn't respond or engage at all. Mm-hmm. And Mike Nickel is left seeing like the bully that's like waving his fists in the air and not getting anything done. It's very clear that this is what it's going to be like for the next year up into the election, but he's looking for that fight and just no one's giving it to him. And it's weird that the place he's looking to fight is with the anti-maskers. That's just not a place you want to stick your claim. Absolutely not. I was going to say strategically, it might make sense for motions like this to extend to not come from Andrew Knack so that we don't have to deal with Nickel and his craziness. But on the other hand, maybe that is a good strategy. Let him look like the bully and don't engage. And Andrew Knack is the perfect person to do that. We're getting dangerously close to election talk here. So we're going to put a pin in that and we'll come back to it maybe in a year. You know, it's it's a long time. What's coming up right now is the municipal budget, which, you know, the last couple times we've been saying this is going to be an important municipal budget. And I think this one is going to be a pretty important municipal budget. This is just a budget adjustment. So typically we're not seeing the big fervor of debate and the new projects. And because of COVID, because of politics, because of a whole host of things, we're seeing this be a very contentious budget issue with city administration recommending the first tax freeze uh, since 1997 and councillors like John Zadick and Mike Nickel going above and beyond and saying we need to make a cut across the board. So what were the big highlights from the municipal budget this week? Well, the biggest is, as you say, a 0% tax increase is what's proposed. That's down from what's currently approved for 2021, which is 3.2%. And uh, I know you don't want to talk about the election, but just very quickly, we have to point out that this is the budget that people will remember when they vote next year. So this is very much... Uh, an election budget, I think. Some of the highlights, uh, they are going to cut about 340 positions. That's what they've identified. So this is called workforce strategies. They think they can save $18.2 million here. Uh, Of those 340, 112 are supervisors. And some of those, they'll just, they're vacant and they just won't rehire for those. Uh, I think that is an amendment that council will broadly say, yeah, why didn't we already do that? One of the other recommendations is to change the frequency of bus routes when they come into effect. Um, So this will save a little under a million dollars in 2021, and it would reduce service hours for peak and rapid routes on the new network. They said it would reduce the fleet size by 10 buses, and some residents, they don't say how many, would have to wait an additional five minutes for service as a result of the reduction. Just a point of clarification there. They're proposing that the new as of yet unimplemented high frequency bus network be reduced in frequency before being deployed? That's right. Cool. Continue. (laughs) It's ridiculous, right? And it's connected to, uh, of course, the biggest highlight from the budget, which is that the city proposes closing East Glen, Scona, and Oliver Pools for the 15th time, maybe, um, which they said would save about $1.4 million a year, along with the Oliver and Tipton arenas. The reason I say this is is connected to the buses is because of the city plan, which we've talked about before, and this whole idea about 15-minute districts. How does that work when we are making the bus slower, less frequent, harder to use, when we are removing amenities from neighborhoods that would allow you to stay within that 15-minute radius? It, It does seem to go against these recommendations, much of the policy work that council has been doing over the last couple of years. So I'll divulge to the listeners that I don't make very much money from doing this podcast. It's very much a labor of love. But I think just the hours I've spent 
over the past couple of years talking about Tipton, talking about Scona and all of our pools. Just that man hours put in has exceeded the $1.4 million <laughs> the city will save. This is a perpetual thing that comes up every budget cycle right. with administration saying, let's close these pools. And then the community comes out in force and says, no, this violates the city plan. These are community amenities. Oliver literally only has that one amenity and you're suggesting we close it to save chump change. Don't do that. That's dumb. And council says, yeah, let's not do that. That's dumb. And then city administration comes back next year and is like, hey, let's close Scona, Oliver and East End pools. It's beyond baffling that this is back again, but it is. It's also baffling that we couldn't find another place to cut. So, I mean, as I said, the workforce strategies, the layoffs, 340 positions, I think is fine. We've seen in the auditor's report that the city has grown probably bigger than it should be. I think if they found those efficiencies, we should absolutely look at, at uh, implementing those cuts. The other area, of course, though, that they could cut is the largest item on the budget, the police budget, $485 million. I looked into this in the operating budget and the proposed amendments. There's a proposed $3.5 million decrease in funding for 2021, plus an increase of $1.9 million in revenue. So they expect a total change of $5.5 million, which is bigger than one4 but significantly smaller than 485. If we're looking for a place to cut, I would humbly suggest that might be a place we could look. I would humbly suggest, though, that the uh, justice minister has suggested that municipalities won't get any funding if they defund the police. So, you know, maybe that's a tactful decision from city administration. <laughs> perhaps. The other thing that I thought was really interesting uh, about the, the pools is this idea that perhaps they could be privately operated or operated by partners. Uh, Councillor Knack was in the news this week saying that uh, in Calgary, many of their facilities, their rec facilities are operated by partners. And he said, quote, I think in this challenging situation we're in, we need to be willing to look at some creative solutions, which sounds to me like he's calling for some privatization. Yeah, um, I would say that a creative solution is not taking the largest, densest neighborhood in the city with the biggest core tax base, removing their amenity and privatizing it to save $1.4 million. Meanwhile, you're building a couple suburban rec centers at $300 million a piece. It seems to me that, sure, we can engage in the thought experiment of privatization and realize that it's a bad idea of its own volition. But the context of what we're discussing, one, that this is core neighborhoods, which are continually subsidizing our sprawl in our city. Every city councilor has gone on record and said that sprawl cost us. And yet when it comes down to the brass tacks of here is an amenity in a core neighborhood, we can save pennies by closing it. Sure, let's close it. What are those core people going to do? Move? Not to the suburbs. They've chose a life in the core. It's like they're holding people hostage with the idea of a city outlined in city plan and people are investing ready for that city to develop. And then the trick is they just never will. It's really sad, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that so <laughs> so pointedly. That but it's true. It's true. That is, I think, an accurate reflection or, or a summary of what's happening here. And it's really disappointing that on the one hand, we say we want to support our, our core neighborhoods, but we don't actually follow through with the money. And that's what counts. Well, so these rec centers and amenities, these are things that would appear in the capital budget. And we've talked a lot this episode about the operating budget. What about the capital budget? That's usually like half of the budget discussion, at least. Was there any capital asks on the table? 
Well, I looked at this uh, just to see what the numbers were. There's an overall $73.8 million increase to the approved capital budget, but most of that uh, council dealt with a couple of months ago um, through the provincial MSI funding, new funding for projects there. Um, But I did see one thing that was really interesting, one new project. So there are a number of profiles that have changed in scope. So they want to spend $14.5 million more on existing things that we already approved. But there's one new profile recommended in this budget amendment cycle, and it's for $1.3 million to advance what is called the Northeast Edmonton slash Strathcona County pedestrian slash cyclist footbridge over the North Saskatchewan River. I guess they haven't named it yet, but... Oh, so the the bridges for pedestrians and cyclists. That wasn't clear from the name. Yeah, it's for pedestrians and cyclists, which is great. We should have more of those. I should say this isn't the full bridge. This is to move the bridge to a new checkpoint or whatever the city calls it. So it's not, you know, going to be done with this funding, but it's still kind of encouraging to see. So what's our next steps here? Has council already approved? We're slashing across the board. There's no more discussions left to be have. I assume that's right. We we don't have to worry about the politicking in the upcoming weeks. Well, our title would suggest those pools have already been closed, but technically they still have to vote on that. So council will be holding a public hearing about the budgets on December 3rd. And then they'll start debating the following week and they'll vote on them currently scheduled for December 9th and 11th to make those uh, amendments approved or not. So I heard a little bit of thinly veiled shade against my title in your comments right there. Are you (laughs) suggesting that you don't think these pools are going to be closed forever? Well, I don't know. I would say that, uh, you know, I know from personal finance that you know, past results are not indicative of future returns, but these things have survived how many budgets now? How many amendments? There's potentially a chance that they could survive again. Um, on the other hand, as you say, uh, this is a different time with COVID and the, the impacts to the budget there. And it does seem heading into an election year that council will be quite keen to have a 0% tax increase. So maybe your title is prescient. Here's the thing. They can vote to close them now, or they can have closing them on the budgets every year until they decide to close it. Mm. Because we know from past experience that there will never be a city budget in which administration doesn't propose closing these pools. That's just not going to happen. Also, something that's not going to happen in the province of Alberta anymore is carding. Police are now effective immediately prohibited from performing unsolicited street checks of people who statistically have been people of color. So Casey Madu, the uh, Minister of Justice, announced today that he's putting a ban on carding in favor of adding more rules to street checks. And now if you heard me explain at the top, I used street checks as a synonym for carding. So what? What? Yeah, I'm looking at this news release and it's calling it a ban on carding that will ensure consistency. And the very next sentence goes on to say, the new rules on street checks were developed in consultation. So I'm not sure I understand what's being banned here. There are some new rules that state that officers can collect personal information only in specific circumstances, such as asking about a crime that has taken place. And these interactions are voluntary and they must make clear that citizens don't have to provide personal information or answer any questions. So that doesn't sound like a ban to me. That sounds like, here are some things you need to say you're doing in order for this to be legal. But also, that is the current state of affairs. People are not required to stop and answer and give identification to the police 
unless the police have a legitimate reason. Unfortunately, police being what they are, authority figures and typically stopping minorities on the streets who may not be well aware of their rights, may be fearful for their safety if they try to assert their rights. I think that has been a problem in the past. And I saw a really interesting tweet from Ubaka Ogbogu, who, sorry if I butchered your name right there, please write in to speak municipally and yell at me. We'd love to have you. But he said two unfortunate things about what Casey Madu did today. One, he has incorrectly framed the carding street checks as solely a privacy issue rather than a systemic racism, human rights mm-hmm. issue, which is a good yep. point. Yep. But two, and this is the more important part, he has now made it more difficult for municipalities to end street checks. Because rather than municipalities being able to say, hey, we don't like this practice of carding, we don't like this practice of street checking, and have something like the police commission say, we're prohibiting this, now we have the Minister of Justice explicitly saying, you can do street checks and here's how. And basically he says, just perform carding, but make sure you don't think racist thoughts while you do it, and be prepared to tell your boss that it wasn't racist. And their bosses may be wearing new outfits. Uh, the final topic we'd like to cover today is about the Edmonton police who brought a package before council this week to basically say, hey, we could look more like London if you um, gave us some more money. Kind of, yeah. Essentially, there are a bunch of reports that are coming back to council as a result of the community and well-being hearings that happened over the spring and summer. One of those is about the uniform colors, which EPS last changed way back in 1999. So it's currently a dark blue. The report says there are 42 of 44 police agencies in Canada that use that color. And the report recommends essentially keeping the status quo on the colors of the cars and the colors of the uniforms and things like that, and suggests that that money would be better spent on what they called, quote, specific relationship-based training, because they said these changes to uniforms would do nothing to change the relationship between officers and the public. Of course, this report came about because there were some uh, suggestions that they look too militaristic and that it is detrimental to the relationship between the police and the public the way they currently are dressed. That's why we have this report in the first place. The police are saying, nope, that's not going to change anything. We need to do something different. And Chief Dale McPhee went further this week, actually, um, and suggested that uh, we need more integration between the police and other agencies rather than just pointing fingers at the police and telling them that they should do better. Counterpoint, the police should do better because (laughs) we have a history of police aggression and brutality in the city of Edmonton. I I don't know. Is that off base? I don't think so. Um, So the police got this report. It suggests that the three orders of government together spend $7.5 billion in Alberta every year on social programs. And uh, the chief says that many of those groups are doing their own thing, measuring their own success, and not working together. And he says that that should change. He said, quote, the issue isn't funding. The issue is that the funding isn't integrated across the ecosystem to truly maximize social impact. We should all be heading in the same direction." End quote. Which is a little bit like saying, well, don't point at my budget and take money away from me. Look at all those other people over there that have money that isn't being well spent. Does anyone else have money compared to the police service? <laughs> when you look at the pie chart, you can't even see the other slices because the EPS one is too big. I find that a really interesting comment that Chief McPhee made there because 
that to me on paper saying the issue isn't funding, the issue is that the funding isn't integrated across the ecosystem to truly maximize social impact. That sounds like defund the police to me. That sounds like we need to reallocate funding from the police to other social services organizations that can prevent crime, that can address houselessness, address all sorts of social factors of crime that we know lead to social disorder. But when we go back to the defund the police conversation that Chief McPhee spoke about back in the summer, uh, he was very vehemently against any reduction to the EPS budget whatsoever. Yeah, I think you're right, though, that his comment does sound a lot like the defund the police position. I, I read his comments and I read what he's saying. And I'm sure the seven and a half billion dollars is kind of a made up number. I presume that includes health and all, all other kinds of spending that we as a province spend on managing the problems rather than addressing the root causes. But the, the idea that the funding isn't well integrated probably is true. That seems plausible to me. I don't think it removes the need for the police to do better and for the largest budget item in the city's budget to be looked at with you know really clear scrutiny. But I don't think he's entirely wrong about that. I do think you're right. It's really interesting that he's saying he's framing it this way. He didn't say defund the police, but he's framing it this way. It reminds me a little bit of the discussion that's happening south of the border right now. Uh, where Democrats are wondering whether or not they should use that term because it turns off voters or choose more plain and inclusive language that you know is less likely to get people's backs up. And that could be what the chief is doing here, signaling that he's open to this conversation um, without you know uh, attracting the people that would be very opposed. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to come of it. And I think that will be an election issue next year. But I think right now this reads a lot like a report that you put on the table to make whatever else you have more palatable. It's, hey, it's budget time. Here's a lot of money you could spend on something that we don't think will change much. No, you don't want to do that? Okay, continue to give us our scheduled increase. Yeah, and the mayor, for what it's worth, was very... He walked the line on this very clearly. He said that they're committed to supporting and equipping the police service to do important work, while at the same time making sure we get the right outcomes and the social safety net. Unwilling to say whether or not he would push for changes one way or the other. I will say, just as a note, I think these changes are good changes. Like, I do think the militarization of the police and, you know, some of the color schemes, I think there's a perfectly valid point there that this doesn't build community. And I think there's a perfectly reasonable point to be made that all our new cars should be checkered yellow or blue or whatever color that was proposed in the report. We shouldn't spend the money to retrofit everything that exists, but I think there's no reason to start changing and any new procurement comes in less militaristic colors. As much as the EPS might like the discussions around defund the police, the discussion around changing how we do policing our communities, it's not going to go away. And I think it's only going to get larger and louder as we go forward. So I think the conversation around uniforms and the conversation around militarization will probably continue. But I think there is a reasonable point to be made. And Dale McPhee skirted around the point that the militarization of the police isn't necessarily just in the cars and the uniforms. The militarization is the behavior of police. When police behave like they're going to war, they seem like military to people on the ground. And if some 
investment in relationship-based training can demilitarize the police in that way, then that's a perfectly valid reinvestment of these funds rather than changing how they look to changing what they're actually doing. Mm. So I hope we see some of that going forward. In the absence of that, I don't know. If this is what has come so far out of our discussions around community and changing policing, I don't have a whole lot of optimism for the new panel that has been struck up by city council and the EPS. Right. But I do have a lot of optimism for the future longevity of this podcast. We are podcasters, you and I. I can think we can say that after 108 episodes. But you, dear listener, you could be just like us. You could be a podcaster. And if you're one of those people who have said, I want to start a podcast, well, tell us has an opportunity for you because StoryHive is giving away 10 grants of $10,000 each to aspiring podcasters in BC and Alberta. Uh, since 2013, TELUS StoryHive has funded and supported emerging creators with mentorship and guidance from the National Screen Institute, bringing hundreds of creative Western Canadian projects to life. And this time, they're taking to the airwaves with their inaugural podcast edition, dropping on November 4th, which is in the past. Yeah, yeah. it's dropped. It is on the ground. It's pick upable. You can look at it and see it now. Um, they're looking for original nonfiction podcast concept pitches from BC and Alberta residents. You have until December 2nd to apply at storyhive.com and you could get $10,000 to get your podcast off the ground. That is more money than this entire podcast has <laughs> ever oh made. That's, yep. that's a lot of, lot of money. You can go to storyhive.com for all the details. So that's all for this week. And we end this podcast with a wee bit of bad news. Oh? Just like when your dad goes away for his business trip and you're stuck at home and you have to eat vegetables instead of going out for burgers every night. <laughs> so too will you, dear listener, have to make it through next week because we will be off next week. We will be back two Fridays from now and you can enjoy our sweet succulent sounds at that point in time. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.